Revelation chapter 12. A great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet and a crown of twelve stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on its heads. Its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that it might devour her child the moment he was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. The woman fled into the wilderness to a place prepared for her by God where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. Then war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient snake called the devil, or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters, who accuses them before our God day and night, has been hurled down. They triumphed over him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Therefore rejoice, you heavens, and you will dwell in them. But woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury, because he knows that his time is short. Thanks, Grant. Well, good to see you all this evening. Um, I was going to quip that you're really working your pastors hard this weekend. Song of Songs this morning and Revelation 12 this evening. And then I realized that we chose these passages, so we've only got ourselves to blame. Um... Not easy, but I, I pray will be encouraging. Um, just uh, for those who weren't here last week, um, it was really an introduction to think about the devil, who he was. If, if you didn't get a chance to listen, then do go online. Um, sadly, there was a technical glitch last week, and it wasn't recorded. Um, but I managed to re-record the talk. Um, unfortunately, they missed out on the discussion that we had, but at least the basics of it is there, um, because it is quite important to have had that foundation if this is new to you. And uh, I mentioned these two books last week. If you wanted to think more about the devil... Um, both, both these books uh, I really recommend um, and I've got copies if you want to look at them before you buy but I hope they will be helpful uh, there was also a handout last week um, I know you all take the mick out of me for doing handouts but I think for this series it is helpful um, because it's the sort of subject where we need to go away perhaps and a um, bit of bedtime reading so um, if it is helpful and you want to go back to it um, again you can download these they're on the website with the talk um, so this is number two um, the girls were handing them around so if there's anyone who hasn't got one um, stick your hand up and then um, there's a little gang in the corner that would be missed. Do you mind running around with those, Eliza? That would be fab. Um, but just by way of recap, uh, last week, the reason I put these up, this is what we did last week. Um, I asked us at the beginning of the evening uh, a series of questions. What questions do you have about this whole spiritual battle stuff? Uh, if you can't read it, don't worry. Um, and then we particularly looked at this question towards the end. Uh, if devil has been defeated on the cross, how come 
uh, Satan still has so much power? Uh, and what kind of questions does that raise? And these were some of the sort of difficult questions that people were um, asking. And so we're going to try and address some of them through tonight. And depending on how energy levels are and time goes, um, we might look at some of those tonight. But just by way of recap on, on the sheet there, uh, for you who weren't here last week, just want to remind us that what we did learn is that, first of all, Satan is a very real enemy. Part of the reason to do this series is it's an area that we often don't speak about in church, but I think is hugely important. So we need to come um, and recognize that the devil is a real enemy. Uh, he's not like the kind of fanciful, comical images that I showed on the screen last week that were the 18th century belief of who the devil was. The second thing to remember from last week is that the devil is powerful. Uh, and as we saw, the devil is seeking to accuse us, to lead us astray, to drive us away from the living God. And the devil is powerful in doing that and has very strong influences in the world. And the third thing, which you can look at these verses when you get home, um, but we noticed uh, that the devil is very subtle in the way he works. Often it's in very hidden ways, which makes him all the more powerful. Uh, and so the little quip that we used last week that I think I'll repeat every week through this series to help us, um, for every look at Satan... Yes, in all his power and his influence, gaze at God. And so actually the purpose of this series is to really encourage us. And we will look again at Satan tonight, but we will finish like last week by gazing at God. Because we need to be encouraged that if we are trusting in Jesus, we are on the winning side. And that's hugely important. Um, so as we come to look at this um, difficult and challenging passage in, in Revelation 12, let me pray that we would indeed, like last week, gaze at the living God. Heavenly Father, these are difficult subjects to look at, partly because the passages in the Bible that deal with them are difficult. They're difficult because of the hardness of our own hearts and because these are many things that we live and experience in our lives. But I pray tonight that you would help us all to understand something of what it means to trust in you, to trust that you have defeated the devil on the cross. And yet, to continue to trust that even though the devil wreaks havoc in this world, he is a defeated enemy. So please encourage us. May we all leave here encouraged that if we're trusting in Jesus, we are on the winning side. Amen. Uh, these were some of the victory uh, verses. I remember last week we were in little groups and we were speaking these to one another to encourage us. And I just want us to focus on that top one to the bit in yellow. That wonderful truth that comes from the passage that I read this morning about the Lord Jesus triumphing over evil on the cross. And this addresses the question we're going to be looking at tonight. If Satan has been destroyed at the cross, how come he still has influence in the world? Uh, why is that? Why does God allow that? So we're going to come to Revelation chapter 12. Uh, rather like Neil helpfully explained this morning as we look at the Song of Songs and poetry, um, Revelation 12 is part of a book of the Bible, most of which is what's called apocalyptic. It's a, another type of literature. And again, we have to read it, understanding what it is. Um, the word apocalyptic literally means an unveiling or an unfolding. So you know um, on a bright summer's morning when the curtains are drawn and you see the sun piercing through and then you yawn and you wake up and then you open up the curtains and the sun floods in. That's kind of what's going on with apocalyptic, that we're given something, a little glimpse, which helps when we understand its theological truth, opening up the curtain to see a bigger reality behind. And so you have to read apocalyptic by kind of, in some ways, sitting slightly light to the detail and looking, what's the big picture? Otherwise, you just get bogged down in detail and get lost. 
Um, apocalyptic literature, a bit like some of the poetry that Neil was on this morning, is very descriptive, it's full of imagery, it's full of symbolism, and our reading had loads of symbolism in it. Um, and one of its purposes is to really move our senses. Sometimes uh, vivid descriptions move us in a way that uh, written prose can't. But go back to the beginning of Revelation. Keep your finger in chapter 12. Revelation is a book that we're often scared of, we think isn't accessible, um, we need special help with. But I want to encourage us, have a look at Revelation chapter 1 verse 3. When John, the prophet John, uh, the, the, the apostle John wrote this book, notice he says in Revelation chapter 1 verse 3, blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy. So the purpose of everything we have in Revelation, which is a hard book, is ultimately to lead to our blessing. So we mustn't be scared of it just because it's difficult. We need to try and pray that God would teach us truths within it so that we can be blessed. And the key thing uh, which you have there on your sheet for understanding apocalyptic literature, and particularly chapter 12, is, I think, perspective. Uh, you imagine uh, an adult goes to the zoo for the first time with a child, and they go to see the lions, you guys have been to see the lions? If you're with a very small child and you go to see the lions, what happens? The small child gets scared, but the adult's not scared, and yet they're still looking at the lion. Why? Because when the small child looks at the lion, what does it see? The lion. When an adult goes to the zoo and looks at the lion, what does it see? The bars. It's been before. Yes, there's a lion, but we're safe from it. A child doesn't always know that. So the perspective that an adult has over a child helps them not to be scared. Or take it another way. You know when the sun's shining really brightly? The sun is um, uh, 855,000 miles across. It's huge. And yet I can block out the sun with a single penny coin if I hold it close enough to my eye and I can't see the sun. And yet a coin is very, very small. Again, it's perspective. So when we look at uh, Revelation and this apocalyptic literature, it's crucial that we get a perspective to understand the big picture. Because if we don't have that perspective, we'll, as it were, get blinded by the sun or get eaten by the lion. We need to have a perspective. So come to chapter 12. Do you notice in, in chapter 12, in verse 1 and in verse 3, the writer says, uh, I've see, I saw a sign. And what does a sign do? It points to something. You see a big M, it points to where you can get horrible food. Okay? <laughs> In Revelation, we have two signs here in, in, in verse 1 and verse 3. What's the sign? Just someone shout out. What's the sign in verse 1? A woman. Great. And in verse 3? A dragon. A bit harder. Who is the woman? Okay, lots of people do think it's Mary, and it would be uh, possible to suggest that it is Mary. Um, that's a, particularly, um, a particular view that many Roman Catholics would hold. The reason I don't think it's Mary, though it could be, the reason I don't is that the description of the woman here, do you see the description of uh, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon, and with a crown of 12 stars on her head? It's exactly the same description that Joseph uses of his family in Genesis chapter 37, where he describes his mother, his father, and his brothers. So it's much more likely, actually, it's a description of the people of God, Israel and today. Now, if that's the case, then the woman represents God's people, and the dragon represents the devil. And do you see the description of the dragon in verse 3? Uh, it has a head. A head, head is a, a symbol of authority. It has horns. A horn is a symbol of power. 
It has a crown. It's a symbol of rule. So as the devil is described here in this very funny language, we're introduced to a spiritual being that is, has authority that is powerful and that rules. And so there seems to be a war going on between the woman and her offspring, the child, and this dragon-like figure. So there's a war. And what you then get in our reading, in verses 1 to 6, imagine if you were filming a film. It's like a panoramic. The, film, the, the, the camera pushes back to unveil the big picture. And then in verses 7 to the end, you get a bit more of a sort of honing in. So in, in 1 to 6, you get this big panoramic view. And the big panoramic is the, 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 the subject for tonight, that God has already won the war. So have a look. We're introduced not just to the woman in these verses, but to the child of a woman. Who's the child? Jesus Christ. And do you notice a little description in verse 5? How is the child described in verse 5? He will rule the nations with an iron scepter. Is anyone very switched on and tell me what psalm that little phrase comes from? Give you a cue, it's the psalm after the psalm that Wellesley speak on, spoke on last time. Psalm 2, brilliant. And in Psalm 2, and if you have a footnote, it'll probably say, in Psalm 2, it's a description of God's king. Rob didn't need the footnote, he knew it. <laughs> so here we've got a description of the child. It's using language which we might know from elsewhere in the Bible. is describing God's king, the person Jesus Christ. But notice in verse 5, what do we read about this child? The child it was protected and rules in heaven. Think of the child of the woman, the child that came from the people of Israel. That child who died, was crucified, then rose again, ascended to heaven, and is seated at the right hand of the Father. That is how the child is protected and rules in heaven. Jesus Christ rules in heaven. But notice the woman, the people of God, verse 6. They are still on this earth, protected by God and taken care of. That's a picture of us. We still live in this world with all of its brokenness, but God cares for and looks after his people. But what does the dragon want to do to the child of the woman? Verse 4. He wants to devour him. So what you have here, big, big picture, is out of God's people, Israel, came a child. And here's the dragon who is destructive and a deceiver. And what is the dragon trying to do? Trying to destroy the child. What is Satan trying to do now that he's been defeated by Jesus on the cross? He's trying to destroy God's church. I know this is very vivid imagery, but that's what's going on in Revelation 12. And then having had this big picture, we then kind of the camera lens zooms in a little bit closer and have a look at verses 7 to 17, because this is a description of the devil's ongoing work to try and destroy God's church. And do you notice in these verses, there's this kind of spiritual battle going on. Uh, on God's side, led by Michael, who's the kind of archangel, the guardian of God's people. And he fights on behalf of God against Satan. And how is Satan described in verse 9? Have a look. He leads the whole world astray. And in verse 10, he's described as the accuser. And we'll come back to that. But because Satan knows that he was defeated on the cross by Jesus, notice what he does. Look at the end of our reading, verse 17. What is Satan's ploy, his desire? We didn't read to here, but just have a look at verse 17. Do you see? Satan went off to wage war against the rest of her offspring. 
against the rest of God's people. So because Satan knows he's been defeated ultimately on the cross by Jesus, he's like a wounded animal. And now what he's doing is he's turning his face to God's people and seeking to destroy us. Okay, what I'd love you to do is, um, I thought this worked well last week, and it is good to help each other rather than me talking from the front. Just turn to the person next to you. Um, Some of you guys at the front here might want to work with the adults because the adults behind you will definitely need your help. Okay, a few group questions just to think about. I just want you to see if you can work through these using your Bible, using your worksheet, and just see if you can work through that left-hand side of your handout down to the bottom. Uh, See how you get on, and we'll come back in a few moments. Uh, come, to, come to verse 10. Don't you think this is um, a hard verse, isn't it? Uh, how does Satan fight? Interestingly, this is one of his names as well. Verse 10. He accuses. For the accuser of our brothers, who accuses them before our God day and night. Just think about that. Every single time you mess up in your life... Satan, as it were, speaks to God in heaven and says, she blew it again. He blew it again, again, and again. Every time you know that you're not everything you want to be, what is Satan doing? He's accusing you in front of God. Look at her. She's not lovable. Surely not. You can't have died for her. And it's this whisper accusing you all of the time. Accusing you you're not good enough. Accusing you you don't know enough. Accusing you you're not beautiful enough. Accusing you that God's uh, death, Jesus' death on the cross was not sufficient. Accusing, accusing, accusing. That's what he does. But you'll know as well that wonderful verse. We have an advocate, one who speaks on our behalf. So every time the Satan throws rubbish at God about our standing with him, Jesus Christ wonderfully, who is seated at the right hand of the Father, speaks on our behalf and says, keep accusing because it's not true because I died for them. You say they're not lovable, I love them. You say they weren't good enough to be saved by my death on the cross, it was. So there's accusation and truth, and it goes on and on and on. Isn't it wonderful that Jesus stands speaking on our behalf against Satan who accuses us every day? And how does he also fight in verse 15? He's the deceiver. From his mouth, the serpent spewed water like a river to overtake the woman. Quite possibly, that's kind of symbolism for the deceptive words that the devil speaks. How did it all begin in the garden? What were Satan's words to Eve? Did God really say? Taking the word of God and twisting it. Not just dismissing the word of God, but just taking the word of God. Did he really say that? Twisting it. And so, as it were, it's like a torrent of untruth, falsehood that comes from his mouth seeking to destroy us that is why the word of god is so important and so precious because every time the devil throws as it were spews out falsehood we cling to what god has said the reason that there was the fall is because eve didn't cling to what god said and listen to this spewed nonsense from satan so he's an accuser and he speaks lies he's called the father of lies you'll see that in john chapter 8 How relentless is the devil's desire to destroy the people of God? What's the lovely phrase that you get? Day and night. Uh, When we did the questionnaire, um, how many of us recognize we're in a spiritual battle? Most of us would recognize we were, but not everyone recognized it was daily. The spiritual reality is that if you're a follower of Jesus, you and I are in a spiritual battle all of the time. 
even when we don't realize it. And perhaps part of the problem is the subtlety of the devil means that we don't always recognize it. And so we need to be wise to his working. But come as well. This is uh, both a warning and an encouragement. Look at the little section here with the lines that you could scribble on. I want you to notice how powerful Satan is. What's the description of his power in verse 9? He leads the whole world astray. And a similar thing is spoken of in Revelation 13. And yet, verse 8, he's not strong enough. This is why for every look at Satan, gaze at God. Yes, Satan's powerful, but the living God is more powerful. Uh, Come to verse 9. How is the dragon described at the beginning of verse 9? He's a great dragon. But what happened to the great dragon? Verse 9b. He was cast down. For every look at Satan, gaze at God. And then have a look at verse 17. We know that Satan has turned on uh, the woman, on the people of God. But I want us to think, what specifically is Satan turning against? He's not just turning on God's people in a general sense, though that is true. What specifically gets him really angry? End of verse 17. The commandments of God and the testimony of Jesus. The more that you hold to the word of God, the more that you live live your life in obedience to God, the more that you speak in opposition to Satan and hold up the name of Jesus, the more that you seek to be faithful and grow in the Christian faith, what happens? The tougher the battle gets. If we just lay down and live very comfortable lives, just like everyone around us, and our Christianity is a Sunday thing, and it doesn't really make a difference, Satan's not going to be that worried by us because we're not going to make much of a difference. But when we live lives that are fully sold out for Christ, the whole discipleship series that Neil took us through, where Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, pick up his cross and follow me. When you live sold out and full on for Jesus, that is what gets the devil really, really angry. And so perhaps you can reflect in your own experience in the the times in your life where you've been most full on for him, where you've spoken for him, where you've tried to be faithful for him. Perhaps that's been a time of particular battle. I think for me, the hardest challenge in preparing a sermon is actually the spiritual battle behind it. The getting on your knees and praying, praying for your own heart, praying for the heart of the people you want to bless. It's a spiritual thing. I'm not just reading a textbook. It's the word of God. And so the more faithful that we get as a church, the more that we seek to hold on to the word of God, the more that we seek to raise the name of Jesus in this community, the harder it will get for us as a church. And we need to be very wise and open to the devil's schemes. But just uh, turn over, as it were, in your handout. I want you to notice, how is Satan defeated? Remember, we've got this, we've got the woman and the child. The woman representing uh, God's people, you and I. The child representing Jesus. And Jesus has defeated the devil. And how has he done it? Verse 11. By the blood of the Lamb. So look on the screen there, and these are verses that you could look up. In in Romans chapter 8, it's it's the wonderful place where the love of God is declared. Who can separate us from the love of God? You know that passage? And here, as Paul is writing, and he's sort of trying to verbalize to himself and his hearers what's going on, he he does it as a sort of a catechism, a kind of question and answer. So as, as Satan is trying to accuse Paul, as he accuses you... Paul speaks out and says, who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? In other words, who can bring a charge against a person who is held by Jesus Christ? 
And he answers, it is God who justifies. In other words, it's only God who makes us right with God. Satan cannot accuse if we're trusting in Jesus. And then he speaks again, a rhetorical question. Who then is the one who condemns? Who dares condemn this person? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, he is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Aren't they incredible words? Every time the devil says that you're worthless, every time the devil says you can't be forgiven for that, every time the devil says Jesus' death was not sufficient, you better earn it. Make sure you're at church twice next week and you have a good quiet time every day or else. Every time the devil accuses... We just look at Jesus and say, he has already won the victory. And that is who we rejoice in. You know that lovely hymn? Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Because every time Satan accuses us, all we can do is look at the cross. And that is where our answer is, that is where our hope lies. That is where our confidence comes from. But even though Jesus has already won the battle over Satan on the cross, notice as well in verse 11 that you and I as his people can still share in that defeat. It's not our battle to win, but we still share in the defeat. How do we share in the defeat? Have a look at verse 11. There's two little phrases. Not a difficult question because I've given you the answers in the handout. Firstly, through by the word of their testimony. You see, you and I share in the victory of Jesus over Satan through our obedience to the gospel. The gospel has defeated Satan. And as you and I obey the gospel and love the gospel and live our lives in light of the gospel, we're sharing in that victory over Satan. But not only that, how else do we share in the victory? We do not shrink from death. Perhaps for these people that John was writing to, that was literally. There are plenty of martyrs. Even today there are plenty of martyrs. But the point is, these people are so convinced of what Jesus has done for them, defeating death, that they'd be prepared to go to their death, because death is not an enemy. Where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where is your sting? I'm not scared of death, because I know someone who's defeated death. And so you and I will share in the defeat that Jesus has, the, the victory that Jesus has already won on the cross, by our obedience and by our readiness to suffer the persecution and trials that come by being a people of God living in this world when Satan's turned on us, the church, and seeks to destroy us. It's not that Jesus' death was insufficient and our work adds to it. It's that he has already won the battle and that we share in that by claiming the victory for ourselves, by thanking him for the gospel. And you notice that's why, uh, just skip forward to chapter 13, What does John say to the the readers in John 13, end of verse 10? This calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of the saints. And then he repeats it again. Go to the middle of chapter 14, verse 12. This calls for patient endurance on the part of the saints. And notice here, interestingly, who obey God's commands and remain faithful to Jesus. What is it specifically that Satan tries to do? Turns not just against God's people, but specifically against the people of God who seek to obey God's commandments and remain faithful to Jesus. And that's the exact thing that John draws attention to and says, but keep doing it, even when it's going to mean an increased spiritual battle. Keep clinging to the cross. And so I think probably most helpfully for us to think about the way that 
we fight the devil is indirectly. You know, um, in Ephesians chapter 6, put on the armor of God. When I was a child, I always thought, and it's probably because it was how I was taught at Sunday school, put on the armor of God. So here I am, and my name, Mark, means mighty warrior. There's a stem that means that. So I thought, well, I'm the mighty warrior. So I'll put on all my armor, and I will fight Satan. But Ephesians 6 isn't about you and I fighting Satan. It's about us clinging to the victory that Jesus has already won, because every part of the, the, the weaponry that we're to surround ourselves in is actually a description of Jesus himself. So when I put on the armor of God, it's not about me going out and fighting Satan. It's about clothing myself in Christ and clinging to his victory. Remember, what does Satan do? He accuses you. And what do you do? Speak truth about what Jesus has done. And so it's in that sense that you and I, as we live our lives in a spiritual battle, we fight the devil indirectly. And I've given some examples how... Like, like that lovely song, I stand on every promise of his word. Every time you're tempted to doubt and you stand on the promises of God's word, you are contributing, in a sense, to the defeat of Satan. Every time you speak out in witness to Christ, even though it could cost you your reputation, maybe a friendship, definitely embarrassment, every time you witness to Christ, you're indirectly defeating Satan. You know that time when you're trembling with fear because you really want to take that opportunity to speak? Next time that comes, just remind yourself, I'm defeating Satan by speaking of Jesus. So even though I'm scared, it's worth it. Every time we proclaim truth, we're defeating Satan. Satan hates preaching. He hates preachers. Hates us. Hates you if you proclaim the word of God because it's truth and he hates the truth. Every time there's that temptation in your heart, you know, that wrestling that Paul has in Romans 7, the good that I want to do, I don't do, and everything I don't want to do, I keep doing, that's that battle inside. Every time you say yes to Jesus and no to Satan, that is a victory in heaven. Every time. So be encouraged when you say no to sin, because it's contributing to the defeat of Satan. Now, what about repentance? Less obvious, but every time we repent and believe, it's a defeat of Satan. Because what does Satan want to do? He wants to turn our face away from the cross, away from forgiveness, put us out of reach. And what does the cross do? It turns our face back to God. Every time we get on our knees and repent, there's huge, huge power in that. If we want to see power in our church, we must be a repentant people. That's hugely important. Prayer. The devil hates prayer because every time you pray, you're expressing a dependence on God. And what does the devil want? He wants you to be dependent on yourself, dependent on your own resources, your own abilities. And every time you pray, it's defeating Satan because one thing Satan cannot do is stop your prayers getting to the living God. Ever thought why prayer is such a battle? Getting down to prayer and focusing when you are praying. Why is prayer such a battle? It's not just a battle because you're rubbish at praying. It's a battle because it's spiritual. And when you pray, it will be hard. There are many times when I'm preparing a sermon and it feels like I'm wrestling God, a Satan. It really feels like a spiritual wrestling match. It's why after preaching you go home, you're exhausted. But prayer is an amazing way to defeat Satan. Every time you trust in the sovereignty of God, you trust that even though you don't understand what's going on in your life, but you, you still stand on the promises of God, that is defeating Satan. So a question for you to take away and reflect on. Maybe think for yourselves, where are you most vulnerable 
Which one of those maybe, and you can perhaps think of others, is the area where Satan might get you? I've been really convicted in recent weeks of repentance and prayer. Am I really prayerful? And am I repentant? Because if I'm not, then Satan will get in there. But those two things for me will be my greatest offense, as it were. I wonder what it is for you. Just want to pause um, before I keep going. Um, anyone got any reflections or questions or encouragement? I've got a little uh, mic here. Happy to pass it round if anyone wants to contribute anything. Are you feeling encouraged? Gaze at Satan. Uh, gaze at Satan. Don't gaze at Satan. Look at Satan. But gaze at God. Yes, Satan is powerful, but Jesus Christ is a lot more powerful, which is why I absolutely love Ken's comment last week. If the Satan knows he's defeated, why does he bother? That came from a man who's been fighting the fight for longer than most of us. Why does he bother? But here's someone who God has faithfully kept and will continue to faithfully keep because God is more powerful, and that's a wonderful truth. Um, let's um, come to last week. Um, how are energy levels? Are we Okay. Cool. Um, I've got a, f- a few things to say towards the end, but I wanted just to look a little bit of a sort of sideways at some of the questions from last week. Um, I've grappled with some of these questions. That these these responses are no way, by no means an answer, and there'll be lots more to be said. But I thought it might be helpful just to make a few comments on some of the questions that were put here in blue, um, and then some of the other questions will come up in subsequent weeks. So one question was kind of what about demons and demon possession? This is a difficult one. Uh, Go to a book like Ephesians. You'll get in chapter 2 a description of Satan being the ruler of the kingdom of the air. So it's a description of Satan himself. But then in Ephesians chapter 6, in that passage about putting on the armor of God, you get a more general description of our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against powers and spiritual forces of evil. So in the same letter, you get a description of Satan, and you get a description of Satan's influences. Are there demonic influences on people's lives today? Of course. Every time a person turns away from the living God, Satan will get hold of their heart and cause more and more destruction. There's some terrible, satanic, demonic things that go on in the world. Some here may have even had exposure to some of these things. And it's frightening, and it's incredibly dangerous. And as Christians, we should have absolutely nothing to do with these things or people who practice these things. Are there demonic influences? Definitely. Uh, Demon possession... It's certainly true that some people can be very, very influenced by Satan. Um, I think there are two dangers. I've been to parts of rural Africa where there were people who were convinced that someone in their community was demon-possessed. In actual fact, it turned out to be epilepsy. But there wasn't medical advice around to be able to help. So we've got to be a little bit careful. Sometimes things are probably wrongly um, diagnosed as kind of someone, um, a demon living in an individual. So that's one danger to sort of be careful. We don't sort of go with it. Remember C.S. Lewis's quote from last week, uh, two twin dangers. One is to, to ignore the devil and the other is to think too much of him. So we need to be a little bit careful. But I've also heard of stories, particularly overseas, of very serious demonic um, influences on people's lives and possibly even demon possession. And I think just because perhaps this isn't something we're exposed to as much in this country doesn't mean we should necessarily dismiss it as not being possible. 
Um, I don't know any more than that. Uh, there'll be others who have a lot more experience. Um, perhaps to chat with John after. I know from just some experience of working in Africa, perhaps you'd have more uh, to say on this. But hopefully that's helpful. There's definitely demonic influences in the world. Um, one of the questions was a really good question. There's sort of dialogue in the Bible between Satan and people. You'll think of uh, the sort of dialogue between the serpent in the Garden of Eden in Genesis and the dialogue between the, um, the devil and God in the book of Job. And a second question that kind of fits into that is, can, can the devil be everywhere? I think I'd respond by saying, uh, in, in the Bible, there are different examples where Satan is personified, as it were, like in the serpent in Genesis. But we need to remember that God is spirit, and Satan is a spiritual being. And so there could well be a dialogue going on in the spiritual realm between Satan and God, something that we don't fully understand and can't access but because the devil is a spirit, as it were, um, there's every possibility that he has influence everywhere. Um, and so we need to be wary of the devil's schemes because he can have influence all over God's world, uh, particularly in places where the gospel is not upheld and people um, serve him rather than the living God. And then Ollie asked a great question last week. How do I know if temptation is from the devil or not? I think it was Ollie, wasn't it? I think I'd say everything that opposes God... Everything that opposes something leading to the glory of God or the building up of God's people in his church. In one sense, all of that is rooted in Satan because Satan is the great deceiver, the great liar. He's trying to tempt us. In in one sense, all wrong temptation comes from the great deceiver and the great liar. But you'll see, won't you, back in chapter 12, verse 17, specifically, what does Satan do? He turns on people who are obedient and hold on to the testimony of Jesus. But interestingly, one of the very dangers of Satan is his subtlety. And so actually, I don't think, it's a great question, but in in response, I don't think we should worry too much, is this temptation from the devil or is it not? The big point is, anything that leads us away from the living God, we want to avoid. And anything that draws us closer to the living God, we want to um, pursue. And every time we stand in loyalty towards Christ, then temptation will get harder. So I hope that helps a little bit. Um, I think if we start to sort of say, well, is that from the devil and is it just a sort of general temptation, then it's very hard to discern. And and the devil works in very subtle ways. Um, So it may not just be a direct spiritual attack on our life. It could just be through an influence in our life where something becomes more important to us than God. And the devil's definitely in that because he wants us to turn from the living God to idols. The gospel says turn from idols to the living God. Uh, last question then, that, that uh, is the harder one. It's really some of the questions that were raised from the red writing over there last week. Uh, is this question of how does Satan serve God's purposes? And this is not an easy one. It uh, really isn't easy. Um, I think I was talking to uh, my home group on Tuesday when, when we had some dialogue about some difficult questions. You imagine I've got a container here, and into the container fits perfectly a set of stones and a set of uh, a load of sand. And you'll know that if it fits perfectly, if I put the sand in first and then put the rocks in, it won't all fit, will it? But if I put the rocks in the container at the bottom and then pour in the sand, it will all fit in. You know the sort of analogy you've heard before? Sometimes in the Christian life, when we have big questions, what we have to remember is to put the rocks in first. These are like the foundation stones. What do I know? And then I'll begin to address all the questions of what I don't know. If we lead with our emotions and all the questions I don't know, it's like the sand. We put the sand in first. There's no space for the rocks. And so when we come to this big question of uh, 
how in the world could Satan serve God's purposes? How could that death serve the purposes of God? How could that terrible thing that goes on in the world that God seems to allow serve the purposes of God? And that's a huge question to which there isn't a flippant or trite answer. We have to put the rocks in first. What do I know? And then if we're able, begin to look at the sandy questions. What I don't know. Because without the rocks, we'll fall apart. And what are the rocks? Well, some of the rocks are truths about who God is. What do I know about God? I know that he's loving. So if I can't understand what's going on and how God can be loving, I still know that he is. Uh, Another rock would be the sovereignty of God. I know he's in complete control. Even if I don't have any understanding of how it seems he's in control in my situation. Rocks and sand. So on the screen are some of the big questions that you asked last week. And there's some of the ones on the red paper there. Uh, Did God make a mistake? In other words, was kind of Genesis chapter 4, take 2. Back to the drawing board with the angelic architects. Uh, Why did God make something imperfect? Uh, Why did Satan get thrown to the earth to reap havoc here? Uh, And maybe the big question that sums it all up is, what eternal purpose does all this serve anyway? Um, As we grapple with these questions, and there isn't a simple answer, just take you back to the quote from last week from the book that I recommended, where this guy Erwin Lutzer said, the fall of man would culminate in greater worship, greater adoration, greater wonder, a greater display of God's mighty attributes. It's a hard thing, isn't it, to think, how then does Satan and all the destruction that he brings in any way serve the purposes of God? I'll give you a couple of examples, though. How does God use Satan to judge hard hearts? If a person has a hard heart and turns away from the living God, God often, in his judgment, further hardens that person's heart. Think of all the examples in the Old Testament where God used a foreign, godless superpower to punish his people. Babylon, who took God's people into exile. Assyria. They were godless people, but they were used as instruments of judgment. And in a similar way, sometimes God will use Satan as a judge on those with hard hearts. It's a difficult truth, but that's an amazing way that he uses Satan to judge the hard hearts of people who turn away from him. Or think of that analogy, but in the positive. How does he use Satan to mature and discipline his disciples? Think of a moment in your life or a situation you're going through now that is hard, that is a repercussion of living in a broken, fallen world. Really hard for some of you. As you continue to grapple with those truths, how has God matured you through it? How has he disciplined you through it? How has he encouraged you through it? How has he helped you to be a blessing to others through it? Sometimes we don't see those things in the moment, but perhaps with hindsight, particularly those of you who are more mature Christians who've been around longer, I'm sure you can look back on your life and testify that God used the brokenness in the world and some of the terrible things you've experienced to actually grow you. I've got a little book at home called The Bumps Are What You Climb On. No one can climb up a wall that's flat. But we grow through the trials of our life. Just to finish then, look at the last bit on that sheet. 
Again, I wanted us to finish with an encouragement. Look at the devil, but gaze at God. And I want us to leave here this evening encouraged that our confidence, or we can have confidence if we're trusting in Christ. And I want us to see that Satan is defeated. As it was Martin Luther who famously said, even the devil is God's devil. And I think that's the reason that the book was entitled by this other guy, God's Devil. So be encouraged that Satan has been defeated. Come back to chapter 12 of Revelation. We've looked at this already, but look at verse 9. How is the dragon described? The great dragon. But what happens to the great dragon? He's hurled down. He's hurled down. If you want to have a look at a couple of other verses when you get home, have a look at Matthew 25, verse 41. Matthew 25, 41. And have a look at Revelation 20, verse 10. It's interesting, isn't it? If you know the book of Job, when the devil wants to wreak havoc in the life of Job, what does he have to do first? He has to get permission from God. That's hugely important. The devil cannot reap destruction in this world outside of the control of God. So the devil, as it were, is a leashed devil. He's got huge power and influence. And often he'll cause destruction in our lives that we simply do not understand. And we will be angry with God. We will be sad. We have to grapple with these truths. And there's not a trite answer. But we've got to believe as Christians that he is a chained animal. And he can only be as destructive as the living God allows him to be. Even the devil is God's devil. But look at the last thing. I want to encourage us again with this, that Satan's influence will not last forever. Uh, in our reading, there were some references to some different times. Uh, these, are, these are difficult, and so to cut through, wading through some very difficult books and a huge amount of study that will make your brain hurt. Um, if you want to, you can trust me on this, otherwise you can go and do the reading for yourself. Do you see in verse 6, 1,260 days... And back in verse, uh, in chapter 11, you've got a reference to 42 months. And then in verse 14, you get this funny phrase, time, times, and half a time. Now, you can go away and read on this if you want, but um, if you don't want to, these are all speaking of the same thing. 1,260 days is 42 months, and 42 months is three and a half years time times and half a time we could i could explain that if you're really interested the point is this there are different phrases that are used in this very evocative language of revelation 12 but here's the point they all speak of the same time the time between jesus's ascension and when he comes back so we need to worry about trying to understand all the detail these times are saying there is a time jesus rose again and one day he will come back and you and i live in this period it's called the end times but that end time it is finite. It will not go on for eternity. And so in the suffering that we experience, in the brokenness of our world, we can take great confidence as Christians. It will not go on forever. I know that sounds almost trite or cruel to someone who is suffering very deeply. But that is a kind of rock that you put in your basket before you pour your sand in. Take comfort that it will not go on forever. So they all speak at the same time. They all encourage us that the battles that we face, the persecutions that we experience are limited. And here's the thing that really should encourage us. They encourage us that there will always be God's church. God's church will always face persecution, but God's people will always 
be secure. That is something that we've really got to be encouraged by. And it's why the Lord Jesus said to Peter in Matthew chapter 16, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail. And that is why, as we saw in Revelation 13 and in chapter 14, John, who is writing from a prison on the island of Patmos, writing to persecuted Christians who are being severely persecuted under the emperor Domitian, they really know what it means to suffer for Jesus. And what does he say? This calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of the saints. And again, this calls for patient endurance on the part of the saints who obey God's commandments and remain faithful to Jesus. Friends, the Christian life is not easy, but we are on the winning side. And so just like last week, for every look at Satan, gaze at our God. I hope that will encourage us.